Okay, in our discussion about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about what He does. So uh, yesterday we, we looked at the words and everything. So uh, today uh, we're looking, continuing to look at what the Holy Spirit does. And remember yesterday we talked about accomplishing the will of God in the creation activities in Samson, uh, the uh, conception of Christ in the womb of Mary. And then we were looking at the uh, very important work of the Holy Spirit in Revelation. And we looked at some of those verses, and I want to look at some others, because uh, it's not a matter in this study of just looking at a verse or two. I'd like for you to see uh, a good breadth of verses on the subject and everything. So we looked in 1 Corinthians 2, remember that? We studied 1 Corinthians 2 pretty well. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. And we're looking at passages having to do with revelation. The revelation of God's will. And uh, as we think about revelation, there are several ideas that are related to to each other. And sometimes they are confused as being the same thing. One of those words is inspiration. Inspiration. Another word is revelation, and then another word is confirmation. And all these things are related to the work of the Holy Spirit in making the will of the Father known. So the inspiration has to do with the means by which the process of revelation is accomplished. So it is inspired. It is God-breathed. And uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scriptures given by the inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. So this is the process by which the revelation is done. So inspiration is not the same as revelation. But it is the process by which revelation is accomplished. So it's just important to make that distinction in your mind. So, but these things all are very important together in connection with revealing the will of God. So here in Ephesians 3, uh, in, in, uh, beginning in verse 1, For this cause I call the prisoner of Christ Jesus in behalf of you Gentiles, if so be that ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given me to you so the dispensation of the grace of God would be like a, a dispensing. Something is given to you. A grace of God, a favor of God is given unto you. And here Paul said it was given unto me. There was a dispensation, a dispensing of the grace of God. I was given a privilege and a job and a task by the grace of God. Well, what was that? How that my revelation was made known unto me, the mystery... Now this mystery, we've already read in 1 Corinthians 2, the definition of a mystery is something that was hidden before but has now been revealed. And again, we know that by what Scripture says, not by just the dictionary. So by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby when you read, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. Now I believe that when he talks about that I wrote before of this, He may be referring to the last half of chapter 2, but I'm also inclined to think in chapter 1. Because chapter 1 in Ephesians, he does a masterful job of writing about the plan of God, 
See, let's take a minute and review. Go back to uh, verses 3 through 7. Uh, Dennis, you want to read those? Mm-hmm. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and celebrated before him in love. Through verse 7. 7. Having presented us with adoption and sons, as sons by Jesus Christ and he himself, according to the good pleasure that we have, the praise of the glory and the grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, even in 8 and 9, particularly verse 9, making known unto us the mystery of his will, you know, so he's definitely talking there, writing there in few words, whereby when you read, you can perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. So I, I'm inclined to think that he's talking in chapter 3 of what he's written in 1 and 2 about the mystery of God, about the plan of God. So this was made known to him by revelation, so that when you read, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. So it's interesting that here in this uh, small letter, he's referring uh, to mystery quite a bit. In chapter 1, and uh, now in this chapter, and uh, he'll, he'll refer to it several times in this chapter, like in verse 9, he'll refer to it again. So several times. Verse 5, he says, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So in times past, this mystery was not made known, but it was, <clears throat> but it has now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, it's important to notice that this revelation was not made to people in general. And this fits in with a pattern that we see throughout the Bible, that it was revealed to select ones, and then from them was communicated to the rest. So here he makes the point that it was not made known unto the sons of men. So on the one hand, it was not made known unto the sons of men. It was made known unto the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And it was then their job to, uh, to, uh, to tell that and reveal it to others. And the plan goes on here to wit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow protectors of the promise. Uh, this is the mystery, that it was the plan of God that the Gentiles be saved as well as the Jews. And uh, so then he talks about, you know, he talks about his part in this and so on. But the part that we're really stressing here is that he, he emphasizes that it was the revelation was made unto the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. It was not made known unto men in, in general. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, it's tempting to just go on and on and on, but I really think that's all we need to emphasize here. And uh, we need to look at some other passages. Uh, let's go to 1 John. That's the one that I had on my mind. 1 John. I, I tell you, I think that 1 John, verses 1 through 4, is the most complete passage uh, in the New Testament, really emphasizing the role of the apostles as witnesses. So look at these four verses here in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. 
Uh, uh, Dan, how about reading those for us? First John 1, 1 through 4. And which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hand was handed, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was of the Father, and was manifested to us, that which we have seen, and heard, and declared to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Now, as you analyze those few verses, what do you see in those verses dealing with the uh, witness of the apostles, both their qualifications to be witness and the work of witnessing? Okay. Okay. So they were in a position to know, weren't they? And he emphasizes, see, look at that. We've heard, we've seen, but he uses a stronger word than seen then, beheld, means to gaze steadfastly upon. So it's not we got a glimpse of him. We gaze steadfastly. We had a prolonged period of exposure to this one's, and our hands handled. Remember, even after his resurrection, he said, come and feel of me that I am, uh, that I'm not a spirit. The spirit does not have flesh and bones as you know me having. So they, and of course they would have handled him before. They would have had time, they, they felt of him. They knew he was real. And, uh, I think the one reason why John is emphasizing this here is because this is late in the first century. And by now, there have been some doctrines to arise, some of which say that the Jesus was not, not real. There was an, uh, an appearance or something like that, Gnosticism. And so John is emphasizing, both in the Gospel of John as well as in the writings of John, that he was real, he was flesh. That's why he says in John 1.14, the Word became flesh. So let no one be mistaken about that. But here he says that we, we heard, we saw, we gazed at, our hands handled, the life was manifested, the life that was with God. We have seen that life. We bear witness. We declare unto you. And uh, in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. And then verse 4 puts the capstone on it. We have written it <clears throat> so that the things realized is that inspiration is a process that may be an ongoing process. But inspiration remains with whatever is given by that inspiration so that the thing that was given by inspiration remains inspired. So even though the inspiration process did not go on after the apostles, that which was written by them was as inspired as when they uttered it orally. So the, uh, the word does not lose its inspired quality merely because it's reduced to the written word. And uh, see, there are, there are people that seem to think it loses its, its quality of inspiration when it uh, becomes the written word. But no, back in Ephesians 3, whereby when you read, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. And here, these things we write, that your joy may be made full. So this, uh, the written word is the revelation. And the fascinating thing to me is how there seems to be the feeling among many Pentecostals that it's not the Spirit unless it's actually active. 
going on right now that it just doesn't count. Well, it does count because even when it is written, it is still the inspired Word of God. It is still the inspired Word of the Spirit. It is still the revelation of God. And the record given of confirmation stands. It was confirmed. So we haven't talked about confirmation yet, but, but we will before, before we're through. But I believe that this passage is another very important one uh, in connection with this revelation process we're talking about. Now another one that let's go and look at is uh, Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. And uh, there are several things uh, in uh, not just Hebrews 1, but also Hebrews 2. The thing is, we, we talked about in verse 1, God having of old time spoken unto the fathers and the prophets by diverse portions and in diverse manners hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son. We talked about that. But uh, let's go to chapter 2 now. And Ralph, would you read Hebrews uh, 2, 1 through 4? Therefore we must give more heed to things we have heard as we drift away. For the words spoken to angels proved steadfast, and every transgression of disobedience received a just reward. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which is the first begin to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it? God also bearing witness both the signs and wonders. Now this passage is an important one in dealing with the confirmation, but it also deals with the revelation, the first part of it. He compares in verse 2 the word spoken through angels. And I, I tie that, I parallel that in a way with a statement in verse 1 of chapter 1. God through the prophets revealed his will to the fathers. Well, here the idea is the word spoken through angels. In both, there's a contrast, the word spoken through prophets with the word spoken through the Son. Here, the word spoken through angels and the word spoken through the Son. See? So, how shall we neglect so great a salvation which at the first having been spoken through the Lord? So, the whole argument here is that if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, in other words, there was no getting around the word spoken through angels even though they are lesser beings than the Lord. And he spent most of chapter 1 dealing with the superiority of Jesus over the angels. But you see, in Hebrews, he's been, he's been on a journey there in chapter 1. He's been telling us that Jesus is superior to the angels. But what's his argument? What's his argument going to be? His argument is going to be that if the word spoken through the angels, lesser beings, proved steadfast and nobody got away with disobeying it. How do you think you're going to get away when you disobey the word spoken through the, the Lord, the Son? Which is a most powerful argument. And of course the main thing he's arguing in Hebrews is don't forsake the Lord. Don't forsake the Lord. The superiority of Jesus is a means to an end in his argument. It is an argument to convince people that Jesus must not be forsaken. Why? Well, because he is the ultimate. He is supreme. So his first major argument is that he's superior to the angels and nobody got away with disobeying their word, so how do you think anybody's going to get away with disobeying his word? You know, I mean, how, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, not only is he talking about the consequences, but he's also talking about the reliability 
But uh, I think he is correct because the spirit is a personality. It is a being. But it's interesting to me that it testified beforehand, that he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ through his prophecies and everything. Now, he says, These things have been announced unto you through them that preach the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit sent forth from heaven, which things angels desire to look into. Uh, look at also Second Peter 1 and verse 21. In fact, in Second Peter, I think it would be good to uh, even look in verse 16. Uh, Ralph, how about reading Second Peter 1, 16? For we do not follow the coming of the divided slaves, but we may know to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then read in verse uh, 20, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but only the men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right. So, uh, this work of revelation, this work of revelation is, is uh, we looked at the idea of inspiration. We haven't looked at 2 Timothy 3, but we have looked at, we've talked about inspiration, revelation. We've talked about revelation a good bit here. And we've made the point that revelation is still revelation, whether it's oral or whether it's written. It's still the Word of God. Um, and there are so many passages, like I'm thinking here about uh, Hebrews, let's see, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. We probably know what that one is. Hebrews 4.12. All right, Dan, read, read it. The word of God is living and powerful and sharp and a two-edged sword, piercing you into the division of the soul and the spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. All right, so we've, we've talked about Revelation making the point that it is equally effective whether it is written or oral. Uh, and by the Spirit's doing this, <clears throat> he has provided himself with a tool. Now, we might compare the idea to the cutting down of a tree. Now, if a beaver is going to cut down a tree, what would the beaver use to cut the tree down? His teeth, which would be a part of him. He would have to go and get a tool to do it with. He could just do it directly. So if you were going to go cut, if you were going to go truck to cut a tree down, you wouldn't use your teeth. You'd, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You'd use a tool, wouldn't you? Well, now the spirit can operate directly, or he can use tools. And whether it is the spirit doing it directly, or whether he's doing it with a tool, it's still the spirit doing it. Now, you might say, the beaver cuts the tree down, and a man takes a chainsaw, and he cuts the tree down. Now, in, in either case, who cut the tree down? Well, the beaver cut it down. What about the other case? The man cut it down. Even though in one of them, he did it directly without any means or instruments. But in the case of the man, he used an instrument. Now then, how does that play out? In, in the matter of the uh, inspiration and everything. 
How would that uh, play out in connection with the work of the Spirit? Do you see where I'm going with this? All right, that's that's right. And can the Spirit operate directly? Yes. But the Spirit can also choose to use an instrument or means. And in either case, it's still the Spirit doing it. And see, this is one of the things that people have such a hard time understanding. Unless it's the Spirit doing it directly, almost miraculously, then it's not the Spirit doing it. Well, no, that's not so. If the Spirit is doing it directly, or if the Spirit is doing it by means of an instrument, it is still the Spirit doing it. And that's the thing that so many Pentecostals do not understand. And uh, when you deal with them, you you just need to understand that they have the idea that if it's not a miraculous thing, a direct, overt, miraculous process, then it's not really the Spirit doing it. And that's just not so. So, I'm trying to get the illustration. So the tool is the saw. Yeah. Or whatever the tool is. Right. Right. It is the revealed word. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, then think about it like this. We could either be reading, we could be opening our Bibles and we could read Acts two thirty eight. Or I could tell you what Acts two thirty eight says. In either case, what I'm telling you is the word. So it doesn't even matter whether it's written or oral. That doesn't matter. See, we can have it. It's the Word of God that's the tool. Not whether it's written or oral. In either case, it's the Word of God. But the thing is, whether it's written or oral does not reflect on whether it is inspired or not. Or even whether it's revealed or not. The thing is, when I'm telling somebody what the Word has said... I'm not doing that by any revelation to me. I am doing it by the revelation given to some other one, an inspired man, and so on, things like that. Okay? So so you just have to kind of think your way through that. And to me, the Bible is very clear uh, on all of that. And all of this goes into this work of uh, the revelation, inspiration, the revelation. And these inspired men were not only guided in what to say, but were also given the means by which to prove that what they were saying was was from God, was directly from God. So the Holy Spirit, no doubt, did miracles. You know, I'm not against that idea at all. I have no doubt that the Spirit revealed himself directly to people. I have no doubt about that at all. But a lot that the Bible tells us about what the Spirit does, he does it by means of the instrument the Word which he has revealed. Um, now, people really have a hard time dealing with that. Uh, I like to illustrate it like I have a letter that my daddy wrote to me, and my daddy was basically an illiterate man. He did learn to read. He would uh, read his Bible, and he would read books that he learned to read. He did learn to do it, but he never could write very well. He could sign his name, but he couldn't do much more than that. So my daddy would, uh, one time while I was in college, he sat down at an old typewriter, and he picked out this message. And it wasn't but three, maybe three or four lines long, just all spaced out. It wasn't much of a letter. 
But um, can you imagine how that letter is to me? It really means something to me. It's written. It's just written. It's an old folded piece of paper. But that doesn't mean it has no value. And it's not just the paper that's of value. It's what's written on that paper. So that something that is written can have tremendous power. So we, we need to figure out ways to help people to see and grasp that the written word is full of power. That it's not whether it's written or spoken, but it's the word itself. Whatever the medium is, it's powerful because of what it says. And that's what we need to work to help people know. Because honestly, that's one of the things they struggle with. So when we study with the Pentecostal, if we have an opportunity at all, we need to work on that idea. Uh, we need to show them. And see, you know, if you get thinking about it, in fact, I think it'd be good to just have a little experiment here. You think about Bible things and see if you can think of anything in the Bible. What can you think of about something written in the Bible that had a great impact on somebody? No. All right. What are you thinking about? Give us your example. Chapter 8, where they found the law. And when they all knew, when they began to read, they all got up. And then not only were they revered toward the law, but there was their reaction to what they read. Okay. That they were all sorrowful. They realized they were, this meant something to them. All right, you're thinking about the days of Josiah when they were repairing the temple and found the copy of the law, or you think about Nehemiah? Okay, Nehemiah. All right, another one is Josiah, you know, when they found the copy of the law and they read it to him, and he was just, remember, he was just absolutely appalled. So you can think of things like that that, that made a tremendous impact. And you think about even letters like um, uh, how Philemon reacted when he got that letter from Paul, how powerful the letter was. The uh, letter written to the Corinthians, the first letter, and how they reacted to it and everything. So, you know, you can try, and then from everyday life we can think of letters or something that we've gotten that have been, oh, just tremendously, uh, have a tremendous impact. So we need to help them to understand that the Word can have power, regardless of what the medium is. Well, let's, let's look now at the point of the Holy Spirit confirming the Word, even though there are, there are other passages we could look at on the Revelation idea, but let's look now at the idea of the Holy Spirit confirming the Word. Now, here is where we need to understand the purpose of miracles. Now, we talked about that a little bit, but here we really need to... I have the point, miracles were not ever meant to be scattered like flower petals at a wedding. They had a specific purpose. Now, this is another major point that Pentecostals don't understand. They think that miracles were sort of given by God to just be used freely for the benefit of everybody. The only thing is, you know, like if I were going to talk to a Pentecostal and he was, and he was taking that view, I think that instead of my saying, man, you are just, you're completely wrong about that. I think that I'd be more effective to say, well, you know, um, can you show me can, have you ever looked in the Bible at the miracles that are recorded there uh, have you ever noticed how they occur because that turns it from what he's saying about what I have done and it takes us to the Bible and in fact one of the things that I wish 
I, I was almost saying I hope I can do, but I'm not sure that there will be time to do this, but I really would like to. I would like to make a survey of the miracles that are in the Bible with you. From the standpoint of saying, where, uh, where was the greatest concentration of those miracles? And in the context of, what, of where that great concentration was, what is the purpose expressed? Now, one of the great concentration of miracles was in connection with the Exodus. And if you go and read in the Exodus, in the places where all oh, that was being done, over and over again, you'll find the expression, that you may know that the Lord is God. You, you've done that in the past. Okay, so not yesterday, but other studies. Okay, oh good, good. All right. Oh, okay. All right. Good. Good. Well, this is one of the main points that you have to get across to a Pentecostal. Miracles were not ever meant to be just scattered broadcast for everybody. and just It's just God wanting to be nice to everybody. That is never true of the miracles in the Bible. And so I think that if you can... You know, really, the only way you're going to have much chance with a Pentecostal is to find one who really will be willing to open the Bible and study with you. Otherwise, you're, you're just going to be, you'll have to take your chances. And it'll depend on how much he gives you an opening. But I believe there are some that if you can get them uh, to be interested in just a prolonged Bible study, then you can do some of these things. And I believe that's the only way for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. But uh, in studying the Bible, the miracles, you'll find that every one of them had a specific purpose. And in connection particularly with the confirmation, the purpose of the miracles was to prove that the word spoken was inspired. So you have to think about it like this. If I am speaking to you and I say, now, I am uh, referring to Hebrews 6.1 or something like that, then my proof would be to have you turn to Hebrews 6.1 and read it. But if I were saying to you that I am revealing to you the Word of God straight from heaven, it's coming from God right into my mind. Now, I'm making an extraordinary claim. When I make an ordinary claim, the only kind of proof I need is ordinary proof. So if I cite Hebrews 6.1, that's my claim. My proof is to have you turn and read it. But if I am making a claim extraordinary, then my proof must be extraordinary. And I cannot be expected to believe it without the extraordinary proof. Now, Pentecostals, now here, here's the deal. Pentecostals generally want to prove their miraculous abilities by the Word. In other words, they want to go to the Word to prove they have miraculous abilities. So, let's put it like this. The apostles proved their word by their miracles. Pentecostals proved or proved their miracles by the Word. So they will go to the Bible and argue with you that they should be able to do miracles. 
And if you say, well, why don't you just do a miracle? Then they say, you don't believe. Well, if there is anything to this confirmation, then I'm not even supposed to believe until I have evidence. Now you take, uh, here's a, a passage we can go to. Let's look back at uh, Deuteronomy 13. All right, Deuteronomy 13. But there are going to be two of them we look at here. One of them is chapter 13, and uh, let's read the first three verses. Ralph, can you do that? 13, 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy? If there are eyes among you of prophet or dream of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder comes fast, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the word of that prophet, or that dream of dreams, for God, for the Lord your God is testing you, to know that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. All right, now bear that one in mind and go to Deuteronomy 18. And uh, in verse 18, you have God saying, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. But now, verses 20 through 22, Dan. But the prophet will presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, for who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen to come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Alright, now you see how these two passages, they fit together, they should be regarded together. So here is the prophet or an apostle, and he gives you a sign. The sign does not happen. Then what has he failed to do? He's failed to prove it. And we are to regard that. That passage is teaching we regard that. On the other hand, like Deuteronomy 13 says, that if somebody gives you a sign, but he's teaching you that which is contrary to the word of God, then... What are you to do with that prophet, even if his sign comes to pass? You're not to hear him. So the the problem that people have in dealing with these two passages is they say, you know, I don't know that. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me that is this is the sign going to prove it in one case, but it won't prove it in the other case? And that's what it does look like on the surface. But now here's the thing about it. Suppose today... I would uh, go into some part of the world where, uh, like in the Amazon or somewhere like that, and I had a table with me, an astronomical table, and I knew when eclipses were going to occur. So I go to those people, those ignorant people, and I say, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to darken the sun. And so the sun begins to darken. scares them witless. But I'm using trickery. I'm not giving them a true sign. And I believe in Deuteronomy 13, it's not talking about true signs. It's not talking about real signs from God. It's talking, I believe, about deceit. Uh, there are all kinds of ways you could do that. You know, trickery, magicians. Man, I mean, they could pull the rabbit right out of the hat, you know. Now, now, do you believe? Now, in view of what God had provided Israel 
you think about this, set, it, set, set these things, and I think this will uh, set these things by one another, and I think it will make it clear. What had God done to show Israel that he really was their God and that he was real? In connection with uh, the uh, Exodus coming to Mount Sinai, what all had he done to show them he was God? And of course, by Deuteronomy, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And play, the Red Sea, water being sweet, bitter water sweet. The manna. What about Mount Sinai? So, see, God had given them such an overpowering testimony that this is from me. Then you're going to let a guy come who can pull a rabbit out of a hat, and you want to take that sign against all that God has given you. That's the point here. The point is not that a miracle doesn't prove anything. No, miracles do prove something, but you better be sure it's a miracle. You could be deceived. So if you have the uh, certified will of God, as it had been revealed through Moses, and then some whoever knows who comes and he's going to tell you something contrary to that, which has been so completely confirmed and certified by God, and you're going to let somebody come, and by some sign he does, remove all of that mountain of evidence that God has given. That's the point in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. But still, in Deuteronomy 18, it does show that the miracles did serve the purpose they were designed, so that if it failed, then you didn't need to examine what the prophet said any further. If his miracle failed, then he's, he's false. Now, just because his miracle didn't fail would not necessarily mean he was a true prophet. But if the miracle doesn't work, right there, you can count him out. So here the apostles are claiming to be spokesmen of God. And they do these miracles. And they never fail. Raise the dead. Heal the uh, sick. Whatever, whatever. And uh, so these miracles confirm now, it'd be like if I were claiming that God was revealing his will directly to me, and I would say, you know, uh, well, I, I can prove it. I've got a pair of binoculars in my pocket. And I say, see? Well, I wouldn't prove anything. I wouldn't prove anything. I happen to have those because I found them in the yard. So I don't know, I don't know where they came from. But anyway, they, good illustration here. But if on the other hand, I said, yes, God is speaking to me directly, and uh, let, let me just show you. And I just reach out like this, and I just do like this, and you rise up in the air about three feet. Then you'd say, uh, tell me more. <laughs> yeah, you, you might be saying, well, well, tell me more. At least you'd be impressed. All right, so let's look at some of the passages that uh, talk about this confirmation uh, one of them is in Mark 16. This is a, a very impressive one. Mark 16. And, of course, this is after Jesus tells the apostles to go preach the gospel to the whole creation. And now let's read uh, Dennis, verses 17 through 20 of Mark 16. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly... They will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. 
So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And they were out and preached, or he went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So, in verses 17 and 18, he said, These signs shall accompany them that believe. The casting out of demons, the speaking with new tongues. Now, is that what your version says? New tongues? All right. Um, They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall in no wise hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, Pentecostals vary. They like the idea of the demons. Because, you know, imagination can create demons. Now, it's a problem. It's a problem in dealing with people who say, uh, I, have, I have seen demons, or I have seen somebody that has a demon. I, I have never found any uh, effective way to just tell them, no, you haven't. So what I do is I'll say, well, your experience is very different from mine. Uh, I've never observed a demon, nor have I ever seen anyone that had one. I've seen people with a lot of problems, but I've never seen one. And the, one of the problems that I have, I continue in my conversation, is that when I hear people talking to me about demons, they're very different from the demons I read in the Bible. And sometimes I like to, if they're going to talk to me about demons, I like to uh, get them to tell me what the manifestations of the demon uh, were before I get into it very much, because generally they will talk about uh, there will be like flashes of lizard skin fading in and out as you look at the person on the neck, that you will kind of have flashes of a lizard skin appearing there for a moment, and then, you know, it's just glimpses. It's like it's kind of fading in and out, and the eyes may glow. The voice will speak very, very deep and sepulchral, like it's speaking out of a tomb or something. There will be a feeling of cold air and a horrible decaying smell or something like that. Now, as you know, you read in every passage about demons in the New Testament. Do you read about any one of those things? Not a one of those things. And so you have to be careful with that. But I say that that they like to use that to cast out demons because you can do that with imagination. Now, when they take up serpents... Uh, they, uh, you know, there are the snake handlers. Now, what they like to do is they get these poisonous vipers, these rattlers. They'll reach in and grab the rattler by the body or something and just hold the rattler up here. And the rattler, well, that's, that's not the point of this. That's not the point of this. The point of this is what happened to Paul. When he picked up the viper and was bitten by the viper, shook it off in the fire, and suffered no harm. Because anybody can handle a snake. There are just wiser ways to do it. I've handled lots of snakes. But I'm not about to pick up a rattler by the middle of the body. No way I'm going to do that. That's dumb. Because if I get bitten by one, I'm expecting to get sick. I'm not expecting to be invulnerable. And so the point is not that they uh, can just pick up a snake. In the same way, if they drink any deadly things. So the idea of the snakes and the drinking of the deadly things, that's a parallel. Something that should be very harmful to you doesn't harm you at all. So um, I was in a, uh, I was helping in a debate one time and we were dealing with a United Pentecostal preacher. 
and he uh, he was typically the uh, uh, he he ruled his people. They lived on very modest incomes, and he drove his Cadillac and wore uh, very expensive suits because the contribution was turned over to him, and he held the deed to the building. I mean, they ruled everything like that. So we, we wanted to discredit him. It was not a matter of just meeting his arguments. We wanted to discredit him as well. So uh, we, uh, we challenged him to drink the deadly thing. So we had two bottles of a very poisonous something or other that I picked up at the drugstore. And so we goaded him and goaded him until he just, he was just driven to desperation almost. He jumped up, he grabbed those bottles, and he began screwing the, both the caps off at once, like this. And he got those caps off and he walked up and he said, I'm going to drink every drop that's in both of these bottles. And the whole audience, were mostly his people, they were holding their breaths because they were convinced he was going to just turn that up and drink it. And, and we were too. And I was looking for a way out of there because I knew what was going to happen when he drank it. And he got up there, ready to go, I'm going to drink every drop of sin both these bottles. If, if you can show me where the Bible says I must do it. See, it says if they drink any deadly thing. If. Well, notice what else it says in verse 18. What does it say in the first part? Does it say if they take up church? They so you know what we did then? We went out and got a copperhead moccasin. <laughs> we brought it in a cage, and we put it right out there, and uh, David Harkrider uh, was the one doing the debating, and he said, so he made his point, you know, it says they shall take up serpents. It doesn't say if, it says they shall. And after he had made his point, then he turned to me and he said, uh, Mr. Walden, bring out the serpent. Like that, you know. So I brought the box out, took it out, and I showed it. And I mean, that guy—he got just close enough. <laughs> he just—he kind of peered around to see that that was a real snake, not a rubber one, and he never touched that again. I mean, he was through with that. It's pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, the idea was that—and see, it wasn't that they'd go around just tempting God, you know. I'll just show you. I'll just pick up any snake I need. No, it's like Paul. It won't hurt him. If they drink a deadly thing, it won't, it won't harm them. They'll lay hands on the sick. And it wasn't just some of the sick. And it wasn't that, oh, you didn't have enough faith. Well, there was never a case where either Jesus or the apostles failed to heal, except now the apostles at the transfiguration, I mean, the, uh, at the transfiguration couldn't cast the uh, unclean spirit out of the boy. But that was before they were apostles. And, but Jesus didn't. And the reason they couldn't do it was because of their faith at that point. Their faith was not strong enough. It was just like Peter walking on the water. He walked on it until he got scared. And his fear drove his faith out and he began to sink. So, but, but they never, they never, no apostle tried to heal somebody and failed. Jesus never tried to heal somebody and failed. But they fail all the time. And they don't even like to do it. Instead, they like to argue about whether they can do it or not. Well, I have every right to expect them to prove that they can do it. So this, uh, but, but here's the thing. When you take verses 17 and 18, 
Then look at verses 19 and 20 and see, Dan, do you see how those two parts go together? 19 and 20 say that the Lord did what he said he would do in 17 and 18 so that we don't look for a continuing confirmation. Now here's the thing about it. Are you, see, uh, Dennis, now would you be still able to confirm the word spoken by Peter? If I were still able? Would you, can you confirm today the word spoken by Peter? No. No, you absolutely could not. So either his word was confirmed by what he did, or it wasn't confirmed. And if it's confirmed, there's not a thing you can add to that. And you think about any historical thing that happened in the past uh, where there were witnesses involved, I'm not going to be able to come along and, and uh, say, you know, oh, when Marie Antoinette was put to death, I want to be a witness in that. Well, wait a minute. No, that's, there's no way I can be a witness in that. So it was confirmed. It was confirmed so that we're looking for a confirmation today. Now look, what would be the only grounds on which confirmation would be necessary today? For new revelation. For new revelation. That's right. So if we have new revelation today, then we're running into a problem with Galatians 1, 8, and 9. If it is the same that we already have, then what's the purpose of it? If it is different, then it's condemned. Yeah, that's right. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. The doctrine of Christ, whosoever goes beyond it. So, so there, there is no further word to be revealed. Therefore, the confirmation process is complete. And this shows that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. This is probably, Mark, my, my best guess would be that Mark was probably written a little over 35 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. So that the bulk of the work of the apostles had been done by that time, including Paul. So uh, uh, Peter died probably about... Oh, maybe 67 or so. Paul probably died maybe 66 or so. The best guesses that we can make. The other apostles, it's just, it's a, it is just about a pure guess. We really have nothing but tradition and legends to know about that. But still, by 66 or 67, the bulk of their lifetime was over. Here they were, mature men, when they uh, were called to be apostles. And then you take, add 35 years to that. And with the persecution, the death, putting them to death and all that. So that when Mark wrote this, remember it was about 35 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. So it would be about 35 years after Jesus told them what he did in verses 17 and 18. So when he then wrote Mark verses 19 and 20, he is telling them what did take place. See? See, you just have to understand that between verses uh, 14 through uh, 18 and verses 19 and 20, you've got about 35 years. So he was able to tell that that's exactly what did happen. 
And uh, then we read a while ago in Hebrews, and it, it does have a lot to say. It's an emphatic passage on the idea of uh, the signs. Hebrews chapter 2, where it says, uh, Having been spoken through the Lord was confirmed unto us by them that heard, God also bearing witness with them. So it was confirmed unto us by them that heard. In other words, they, they witnessed what the Lord said, they repeated what the Lord said, and God bore witness with them both by signs and wonders and by manifold powers and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So the signs, the wonders, the manifold powers, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, these were given in order to demonstrate that these men were the servants of God. They were revealing his will. They were speaking his, uh, his word. And uh, you can also remember in Acts 8 when Philip went up to Samaria... Um, it says, um, let's see, in verse uh, 6 of Acts 8, the multitudes gave heed with one accord unto the things that were spoken by Philip when they heard and saw the signs which he did. So did Philip argue that he could do miracles by the word, or did he prove the word by the signs which he did? See that? So that's another really good one to use to show that that was the way, that was the purpose that the miracle served. And, um, uh, let me see, and then uh, verse uh, 13, Simon also himself believed and being baptized, he continued with Philip and beholding signs and great miracles wrought, he was amazed. And uh, throughout this, we'll, we'll look at this passage in more detail uh, later on. All right, so this thing about confirmation is not a promise that can be fulfilled now. It was already fulfilled, and we can't add to it. Even if I did a miraculous act, it wouldn't be, ju- it wouldn't be confirming the word that was spoken by the apostles 2,000 years ago. It would be proving a word that I spoke. But if I couldn't do the miracle, then it would prove that my claim to be speaking the word of God directly by direct inspiration is false claim. So unless I can do miracles, then I can't make that claim and and uphold it. All right, what we need to do next uh, as we continue looking at the work, and and we've uh, about spent our time today, but uh, I'm going to look at a passage in Romans 8, 26, and 27 about the intercession of the Holy Spirit. The uh, Spirit intercedes for us. And uh, in that, I'm going to talk about the indwelling, although I'm not going to just really dwell on the indwelling uh, today, but maybe later in the week I'm hoping to, uh, to do that, to have a, a pretty, uh, uh, pretty intense discussion about that. So tomorrow we will look at Romans 8, 26 and 27, uh, Lord willing, and uh, kind of explore some things about that. And uh, then we'll move on from there. And one of the things I want to do is I want to study about the uh, the, the whole uh, the whole context of the Holy Spirit falling upon the apostles and everything that transpired after that. There are a lot of things that I want I want to share with you on that. So we will we will plan to do that uh, tomorrow, Lord willing. One thing I'm a little afraid of today is that I didn't get word to Jonathan. So I'm afraid Jonathan may be coming here at 10.30 to hear the lesson on the Holy Spirit. I've kind of been worrying about that in the back of my mind, but uh, I 
didn't think about that until I had arranged to go ahead today. But we do we do have it recorded and and everything.